there was an excited sparkle in his eyes as he came up to me at the end of the session. I was so thrilled when you said you were going to be preaching from the Old Testament, he said, because I became a Christian through reading the Old Testament. That is something you don't hear every day, so I was eager to hear more. He was one of the participants at a regional conference for Christians and secular professions in eastern India, where I was giving a series of talks in September 1991 on the subject of biblical guidelines for Christian involvement in the secular world. He is now a doctor of science and a university lecturer in chemistry, but his earlier life was an unlikely starting point for such a position. He grew up in one of the many backward and oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is systematically exploited and treated with contempt, injustice, and sometimes violence. The effect on his youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above that station in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. His goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain some kind of power and thus the means to do something in the name of justice and revenge. He was contacted in his earlier days at the college by some Christian students and given a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect at first for Christians at all. It happened that the first thing he read in the Bible was the story of Naboth, Ahab, and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. He read on through the rest of the Old Testament and found his first impression confirmed. This God constantly took the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. Here was a God he could respect, a God he felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him yet, because such a God would understand his own thirst for justice. This was a serious God who meant what he said and expected people to act accordingly. He was not capricious or arbitrary like the gods of mythology, but a God of absolute purity, a God to be careful with. All this discovery was a staggering to him as he read on and on. He found himself praising this God he didn't know. God, you are so just, you are so perfect, you are so holy, he would exclaim, believing this was the kind of God that answered the need of his own angry struggle. Then he came upon Isaiah 43 and came to an abrupt halt. But now, says the Lord, it's a beautiful word in the Indian language, Telugu. Apparently it means, yet in spite of all that, the end of Isaiah 42 describes Israel's sin and God's just punishment, but suddenly, unexpectedly, in Isaiah 43, God is talking about forgiveness and pardon and love. I couldn't take that, he said. I was attracted to the God of justice and holiness. I ran away from a God of love, but he couldn't. For as he read on, he found such a God more and more still in the Old Testament. 
It was about then that the Christian friends came and explained more about the fullness of God's justice and love on the cross. And he came at last to understand and surrender to the God he had found in the Old Testament, and his life was transformed through faith in Christ. As I reflect back even now, what struck me most forcibly about this man was the fact that the things that had so attracted him to the God he read about in the Old Testament are the very things which many Western Christians so often find repelled by. The sheer detail of the law in the Old Testament, likewise, puts many modern Christians off even reading it at all. And the God of unapproachable holiness and purity becomes rather hidden in sentimental waves of chummy affection for one and all. Are we ever shocked by God's love and mercy? Do we ever, like Jonah, find it just too unbelievable in the light of what we know of God's justice and judgment? I never knew such a God existed. But he does. Not just in the past of ancient Israel, but in today's world as well. Are we afraid to discover him? Thanks, Craig. You know, that's a true story of a man who was converted reading the Old Testament, of all things. He was a man hell-bent on revenge, who was attracted by the justice of God, felt affirmed in seeking it because of the brokenness of his own story, and yet he discovered a God he didn't expect. And it changed him to become a follower of Jesus, a man of peace, a man of mercy, and not just justice. As he just ended his little monologue, do you want to discover him? For some of you, it's a rediscovery, a fresh awareness of who this God is. But for some in the room, maybe you've only heard of one or the other aspects of who God is, his justice, his holiness, or maybe just his mercy. But today, I want, to, I want us to look at this chapter that changed this man's life, 1 Kings 21, hoping and praying that he'll do the same for each of us. We're going to look at three things. We're going to discover three things about God in this chapter in 1 Kings. The sure justice of God, the shocking mercy of God, and the ways that he changes us. His sure mercy, his shocking, or his sure justice, his shocking mercy in the ways he changes us. With that, I, I want to, um, we're going to have a, a video of this reading. I want to invite you to stand if you, if you can, but it is a l- little bit longer of a text like last week, so it's okay if you'd prefer to, to be seated. So whichever you choose, here's the reading of God's word. Our central text for today is found in 1 Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 through 28. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, Ahab, king of Samaria. And after Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, 
or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value for mo in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And, so, and Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would, would eat no food. But Jezebel's wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king and let him take out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And they, they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has taken, gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me. And because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. 
And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, you speak to us through your word this morning. I pray that we would listen. Help me, a weak but called servant, to share what it is that you want to say to your people. Lord, may the word, words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Pray this in His name. Amen. So we're going to think first about the sure justice of God. Uh, we, just to catch you up if, if you're new, we've been in a series of sermons uh, following the life of Elijah in the book of First Kings. He's a really interesting prophet, and he, he tends to speak truth, uh, even especially in the last few chapters that we've touched upon, to kings. He's been speaking truth to power. And uh, my good friend Brad, the intrepid Brad Owen, stepped up last week. Uh, I was sick. I was supposed to preach this last week. He stepped up and preached uh, probably the most difficult chapter in 1 Kings. Um, thank you. He did such a great job. Um, but this might be the second most difficult. So he, he wins gold. Maybe I'll get silver. We'll see. Um, but we're going to be thinking first about God's justice here. Um, just to remind you, Elijah was around 900 years before Jesus walked the earth, but we see so much of Jesus in his story. Something like an Easter egg in a, in a, in a movie. They're hidden things in plain sight. And, and here, in Elijah's story, we see Jesus hidden throughout his story. And just another reminder, Ahab, right, he had married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, and she was a worshiper of Baal, the storm god. And through their marriage, he became, Ahab the king became a worshiper of Baal as well. And the nation followed after their leaders. And they became primarily worshipers of this storm god instead of the true god. And so it caused all sorts of havoc. And we see a microcosm in the story of Naboth this morning. We're going to see a microcosm of the havoc that idol worship reeks in any person's story, in any nation. Um, you see, idols, they will never tell you. Idols will never tell you to deny yourself that which you really want. That's one litmus test of whether an idol is operative in your life. And we see that here for Ahab. He was obsessed with this vineyard in Jezreel. See, Jezreel was where he summered, okay, King Summer. I guess they go places for a few months, and, and it's a little bit cooler, a little north of Jerusalem, uh, about 20 miles north in Samaria, and he couldn't get this neighboring vineyard, which is right next to the palace, off his mind. 
Did you all ever see Emperor's New Groove? Great film. Kind of like Cusco wanted to make Cuscatopia. And he wanted to take this gentleman's, you know, land that he had inherited from his fathers and he had been up there on that hillside for generations. He said, I want, it, I want my pool up there. It's similar to that, except there's no llamas in this story, okay? Um, but the vineyard was adjacent uh, to the royal palace, and, and it was part of the <clears throat> northern kingdom of Israel. And so, uh, so Naboth is offered this fantastic deal uh, by the king for his vineyard. On its face, it was a great deal. He said, I'm going to give you cash. I'm going to give you cash for this vineyard, or I'm going to give you a much better vineyard somewhere else. What do you think? And we see in verse 3 how Naboth responds. He says to the king, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Why did he refuse? We're actually not told exactly, but he's probably keying off some verses in the Old Testament from Leviticus 25 and Numbers 36. We, we learned that God had told his people, don't sell the land that you inherited from your family that I gave to you. I prom- this land was promised to you. I gave it to you. Don't sell it unless you're in an extreme emergency situation, such as terrible poverty or something like that. And Naboth apparently is not in an emergency situation. So he refuses to sell, just as God had asked them to. And here's the thing. Another sign of an idol calling the shots in our lives is when we take the road of convenience rather than the road of obedience. See, God had told them, hey, don't sell it unless you're in a really hard situation. And he said, okay, I won't. Even if the king ask me, even if I'm offered this awesome deal. And the king responds by being vexed, which we heard last week. The king likes to be vexed. He's vexed by all sorts of things, especially this one. When one of his citizens rejects his offer. And so he pouts, And Jezebel notices because he skips dinner. And Ahab apparently never skipped dinner for anything, (laughs) except for in this situation. And Jezebel comes up and says this in verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else. If it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. I want you to notice something I picked up. In verse 3, he doesn't actually say that. So, so Ahab spins Naboth's words a little bit here. He said in verse 3, remind you, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers, but Ahab says, I will not give you my vineyard. So you see this little spin of Naboth's words is indicative of Ahab's spiritual condition. When we spin the words of other people, it's probably a good sign, again, that an idol is operative in our heart. When we make other people look worse than they really are for our own advantage, it's a symbol that someone other than Jesus is at the helm of our hearts. And we see that case in point here 
um, you know, he might have spun the words so that he could get a rise out of Jezebel. Maybe he knew that this would set her off. Or perhaps he just couldn't care less about what God had said in Leviticus 25 or Numbers 36. We aren't told. But again, strawmanning people, making people out to be something other than they are, putting words in their mouth, is the way of Baal. It's not the way of Jesus. So whatever the case, Jezebel took matters into her own hands, and she comes up with this plan to get rid of Naboth. And I want you to... to so Eugene Peterson uh, wrote the message paraphrase of the Bible, and I love the way he paraphrased this verse. Verse 7, Jezebel said, Is this any way for a king of Israel to act? Aren't you the boss? On your feet, eat, cheer up, I'll take care of this. I'll get the vineyard of this Naboth, the Jezreelite, for you. So Jezebel is acting out her Phoenician worldview. She's, she's wearing the bracelet, what would Baal do? And she's just following. And in, in her worldview, the king is not subservient to the law of God. God's law is subservient to him. You bend the rules for whatever you desire, Ahab. You're the king. You're in power. You make him pay. That was the way of her God. Another indicator that an idol is at work in our lives is when people become means to our ends rather than ends in themselves. Jesus is the creator of all things. And one of the things he says in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and in James chapter 3, is that people are made in the image of God. Therefore, no matter how much you disagree, no matter how much they might reject your offer for a vineyard, they are made in the image of God. They are not means to our ends. They are ends, precious ends in and of themselves. And so we see their spiritual condition at play here in this hatching of this plan to get rid of this person who was just trying to be obedient to, to God. And so she calls for this fast. Here's the plot. She calls for this fast, and she's going to put Naboth at the head table. And then she hired two men to claim that Naboth had blasphemed against God and against the king. And look, Jezebel knew her Bible. In Deuteronomy 17, it says that there must be two witnesses according to the law of, uh, the, of blasphemy. And if there are two witnesses to someone's blasphemy, they would, be, uh, they would have to undergo capital punishment, in this case, stoning. So she knew her Bible, and she set it up perfectly. And the plan goes off without a hitch, and Naboth is stoned to death. And then Ahab, so excited, is able to go and seize the vineyard that he always wanted. Naboth's out of the way. And so he proceeds to the vineyard. But then the word of the Lord comes through Elijah the prophet. And we see the sure justice of God. Verse 17. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord. Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. See, God promised that Naboth, um, who had been killed unjustly because of Ahab's sin, that Ahab would receive the same fate, that he would be killed, that he would be judged. And I want these words to marinate in your, in your hearts this morning. God's justice is not always swift, but it is sure. Maybe there's someone in this room that needs to hear that God sees the wreckage that you have been living in. That he has not forgotten the hardship, perhaps even the abuse that you've experienced. God's justice is always sure. It may not be as swift as we like, we don't know why God didn't foil Jezebel's plan like he foiled the plan of Pharaoh to take out Moses when he was a baby. We don't know why he didn't intervene like he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the king, the evil, corrupt king, throws them into the furnace. We don't know why he didn't spare Naboth like he spared them. Perhaps it was... So we can see the failure of the religious and legal authorities to stand up to power. They knew exactly what the king and Jezebel were doing. And they did nothing. We aren't told why. However, what does come through clearly is that God will surely mete out his justice in the end. Thus says the Lord, we will have justice. You will have justice. Whether in this life or the one to, to come. And as God promised, in 1 Kings 22, Ahab dies in battle in Syria. And in 2 Kings 9, Jezebel is thrown from her tower and her body is eaten by dogs. And so hear me, for all the Naboths in the room, God's justice is sure. It will come in the end. But there's more to this God that we need to discover today. And that is his shocking mercy. We'll turn there next. So God's word of judgment came through Elijah onto Ahab and also onto Jezebel. God said he would bring disaster on them before because of their horrible sins against Naboth, this innocent man. But then the narrator inserts something that sets up the shocking mercy of God. Verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So I want to ask you a question. Who is the goat? Who's the greatest athlete of all time? I'm going to give you my two votes. 
I feel like it's between these two guys. What I should have done, and I, I, I just thought of this literally right now, Serena Williams should be up there too because Serena Williams has actually won more championships than any athlete of all time. So she's really the GOAT. Okay, sorry, disregard this. Um, but of those two options, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick Jordan because look, on the, on the left side, you see finals six, and then right above that ring, six. He went six times, he won six times. Tom Brady went 10 times and won only seven. So it's settled. Jordan's better. So the writer of 1 Kings lets us know he wanted to insert something about Ahab, that he was an abominable sinner, the worst king in Israel's history, the greatest sinner. And Brad said this last week, and I'm gonna, I think it bears repeating, that the, the book of, or this part of 1 Kings and last week's chapter 20 as well, the point of those, these two chapters is not to say, don't be an Ahab. Even though you shouldn't imitate this person, of course. The point of the Bible is for us to behold our God and to become like him. And so I want you to, to look at what the narrator says next. Let's look at this. Verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth, sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Here's a story of, of, about a man, a horribly unjust man, who encountered the sure justice of God and repented. And what do we see God do? Even for the goat, he shows him mercy. He shows the worst sinner one of the worst sinners in the Bible, mercy. This is shocking to our modern sensibilities because in our day and age, it's cool to wave the flag of justice. And by the way, justice is good. Justice is in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. But you know what flag we very rarely wave? The one labeled mercy. The only time we wave that flag is when something, when we're kind of in a pickle. Mercy for me. And we might ask for mercy for those we agree with. But most of the time we find ourselves canceling rather than forgiving. Editing them out of our life. Editing them out of our friend group. Editing them out of our families. because we're all about justice, but we're not about mercy. But do you see how different God is than most of us? Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? 
You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You know that God loves to show you mercy when you've sinned? You know that he enjoys it? When you've sinned in secret for the 2,000th and 10th time, you feel like no one's ever going to find out and it's rotting you from the inside out. It's a cancer to your spiritual life because you can't tell anybody because you feel like you will never be forgiven. You will never be shown mercy. You know that, listen to what God of the universe says to you. I want to show you mercy. I like it. I delight in it. Let him show you mercy. Ask for it again. He delights. You know, getting what you deserve, that's justice. But getting what you don't deserve, that's mercy. And that's what Jesus does for us. That is why we follow him. Because there's no one like him. Just like the man from India. I never knew a God like this existed. Because there is no other God like him who delights to show mercy. God's response to the greatest sinner is to show even greater mercy. Just like we just sang, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you this morning? For me, a broken and sinful pastor. I can't out-sin God. I can't out-sin His mercy, and neither can you. Hold on to that today. An unending supply. And He is waiting in the wings this morning for you to throw in the towel on serving that idol and to surrender to him and to say yes to him. Do you want to discover a God like this anew? Or maybe for the first time, he is waiting in the wings for you. And you know what happens when you do? That's my final point, how he changes us. In 2018, uh, Larry Nasser was, at that time, the gymnast for USA Gymnastics. And he was sentenced for 175 years in Michigan State, in a Michigan State prison, after pleading guilty to an uncalculable amount of sexual violence and misconduct. And one of his victims, one of his hundreds of victims, was a woman named Rachel Den Hollander. And you may know um, that she played an integral role in bringing this monster to justice. And I want you to listen to a few minutes of her testimony in court. And bear in mind that as she's speaking, she's speaking directly to uh, her abuser, Larry Nasser. So listen. This. But I want you to understand why I made this choice, knowing full well what it was going to cost to get her, and with very little hope of ever succeeding. I did it because it 
was right. No matter the cost, it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but maybe if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And I'm almost done. But how do you respond to this video? Gosh, every time I watch that, I just can't get through it. Sorry. Some of you are cheering for her. Some of you feel like she let him off easy. But she's identified herself as a sinner in need of God's grace, in need of his mercy. And she's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that she can extend forgiveness to her abuser. She knows her Bible and she knows what her God did for her and so she imitated him. Friends, this is discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To become like the one you love. To look like him, to speak like him. Jesus does this for each of us. 
He looks at us and says, you are wrong. And you are broken. And yet, I forgive you. And this is why we can become like him. Because it changes us. This kind of mercy is not found in the world. This kind of mercy is found in another world. It's from heaven itself. And heaven itself came down in Christ. And he chose to enter the wreckage of sin for us. He chose to enter into your heart by the Spirit and therefore into the wreckage of your life and the wreckage of your own heart and to stay and to say, I forgive you. I love you. I delight to show you mercy again and again. The gospel, as she said, extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. Amen. If you're a follower of Jesus, let that sink deeply into your soul this morning. We have all been given mercy where none should be found in Christ. That's the cross. The sure justice of God fell on Jesus and so that he could extend, when he rose from the dead, the shocking mercy of God even to us. For the weary and bruised Naboth in the room, God's justice is coming. Jesus is, he has promised that he will come, and when he comes again, he will wipe every tear from your eyes. He will make every crooked thing in your story straight. He will bring restoration where there's only burned out ash. He promises to bring new life once and for all. But in the meantime, our greater Naboth, Jesus, extends to us infinite mercy today and every day. Will you take it? Let's pray. Father, we are shocked by Rachel's courage She's a hero, Lord. I look at someone like that and I just feel so weak, so wimpy. And yet she gives me hope that we can become men and women of truth and mercy and shine like a city on a hill in a dark and hopeless world. And it's all because of our true hero, Jesus, who went to the cross to show us what we didn't deserve so that he could get what we deserved. I pray that that mercy, that justice would mark us, would emblazon itself on, on our hearts, on our, on our imaginations, on the ways we speak to one another ways we speak to the world. That way we'd be a peculiar people because of the mercy and truth 
with which we which, with which we live and speak. Help us, Lord. By your spirit, we pray in Christ's name.